Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will a ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed from what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their hearts and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Well, welcome back for week 10. It's great to be here one last time for 2020. Please join with me in praying as we come to look at this great passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for sustaining us and keeping us in you this year through all the ups and downs. Father, please... May you give us open eyes to see and ears to hear and soft hearts to understand and to respond to your word with faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, could your life be glorious? Uh, Glory is a bit of a strange thing. I'm not sure if you've thought much about it. It's attractive. It's desirable. We want it. But at the same time, it's unattainable. 
few of us think that we'll ever actually achieve it or receive it or, or really have much glory. I mean, there's fame on the one hand, but fame doesn't equal glory. I mean, take Scott Morrison, our great Prime Minister, for example. He's a famous guy. He's a morally upright guy. He's led us well through a pretty crazy year. But would you say he's got glory? I don't think so. Uh, interestingly, the one arena that we do speak of glory is in the sporting sphere. In our society where we worship sports, those who will succeed, who have victory, they are said to have tasted or achieved glory. But sometimes it's not even just about winning. I'm not sure if you follow any professional bull riding, but eight seconds is all you need to attain to glory. And that's not even to win, that's just to stay on that bull long enough to actually get a ride that scores, that counts. And when you do watch some of the bull riding, you see that you've got to be pretty crazy to pursue that kind of glory. So what would you do to chase glory? Or are you someone who's just going to rightly accept that, well, glory is beyond you? And arguably, that actually might be the better outcome. Uh, more and more athletes are coming out and actually confessing or acknowledging that on the other side of attaining that sporting glory, well, it's a dark place. It's a place empty of the, the hope and the unfulfilled dreams that they'd longed for. For many of us, it's actually a better path to not be the ones seeking to attain the glory for ourselves, but to, well, in some senses, share in it as we cheer on those who succeed, perhaps on our behalf. But all this goes to show, I think, that we don't really actually understand glory. We don't know what it is or how to get it or whether it's actually worth it in the end. The closest we get is those fleeting triumphs or successes in the sporting arena, as our idols get the glory that they've chased after. But glory is sparse and fleeting in our world because glory does not come from our world. Glory belongs to God. It is His by nature. He is the one who has it, and He is the one who gives it. And because of that, as we've been reading through these first 10 chapters or 12 chapters of John's Gospel, Glory has never been far from the Lord Jesus. At the beginning of John's Gospel account, as we introduce to Jesus as the eternal and the divine Word of God, see how we're told about Him? The Word became flesh in 1.14, and He dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, at that very first Christmas, God's glory entered into the world, and it came in the person of Jesus. And through Jesus' life, through His words and through His works, He manifested the glory that was His as the one who came from God into the world. Uh, we see that with the first miracle, that first sign that He did in chapter 2. Have a look, it says this is the first of His signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. See, from the outset, when he turned water into wine, it was manifesting the glory that he had. And the right response to that was belief. We've seen that time and again through John's Gospel. But you may also remember way back in chapter 2 that when Jesus' mum said, hey, the wine's run out at this wedding banquet, can you do something? Jesus was hesitant. Have a look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So as we've gone through John's Gospel, we've been following this hour, this hour of anticipation. What is going to happen there? What is Jesus' hour all about? And we've seen that Jesus has come from God as the one who manifests the glory of God 
in the world that God has made. Because now, uh, just before where we started reading, as we come to chapter 12, uh, it's a couple of years further on, Jesus says that these things are all coming together. Have a look at verse 23. Which we lost verse 23. But I'll read verse 23 for you. It's on the page you should have it in front of you. But verse 23 says, uh, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We've made it to that hour. And it's an hour of glory. Are you feeling excited? As we've worked our way through over these last 10 weeks, the climax is coming. This hour of Jesus' glory is upon us. But strangely, Jesus doesn't actually seem excited. If you pick it up at the start of our reading, in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. For Jesus, arriving at his hour is a troubling thing. Now, interestingly, this this idea of trouble, this inner turmoil, it's the same thing that Jesus felt back in chapter 11 and verse 33 when he was confronted by Mary's grief over the death of her brother Lazarus. Even though Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus to life again, it wasn't going to end in death, he really felt that sorrow and that grief. And it seems to be a similar situation here. Because as Jesus keeps going, as we keep reading, he explains what the hour of his glorification is all about. And we see why it's troubling. Have a look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And just in case you missed what John's talking about, or what Jesus is talking about in these words, John makes it extra clear in verse 33. He points out, he says, and he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And this is a bit of a problem. A problem not just for Jesus. Over his last few years of teaching and of miracles, he's gathered quite some interest. Now, some love him. Some hate him and are trying to kill him. But arguably, today's been a pretty good day. If you read from uh, just beforehand, we've seen from verse 13 that Jesus is welcomed coming into Jerusalem. Just a chapter beforehand, we saw that the religious leaders were plotting to kill him in Jerusalem. He's been lying low, not going about in public until now. He comes in riding on a donkey and the crowds are hailing him as the promised Christ, the King. And they're worshipping as the one that God has sent. Now, off the back of that kind of an entry, how can Jesus talk about his death? Well, that's the same objection that the crowd brings up in verse 34. They say, in response to Jesus saying he's going to die, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They're spot on. I'm not sure if you know, but God promised that his king, the Christ, would come and would reign forever. That's what God promised to King David a thousand years earlier. We read about it in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's that eternal reign of the Christ. Or again, 300 years later, God spoke through Isaiah the prophet, again looking forward to this great king. Uh, Great verses we remember at Christmas, that time when the child is born. For to us, the child is born. 
To us the Son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's an almighty King, isn't He? This is the promise of the Christ. And what about His kingdom? Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And of the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you see, God promised that His King would come and reign forever. Earthly kingdoms rise and they fall. But if you trust in God's King, you are guaranteed security for all time. Peace, justice, protection, provision. That was the great hope of the Christ. And now the crowds have just proclaimed that Jesus is that King as He's come in. And yet he says he's going to die. How is that possible? And how is that the hour of his glory? The time when he's put to death. The crowds were puzzled back then. But I wonder if as you have a look at this passage, as you chat with your friends, you might be able to help the crowds. What do you reckon? Why don't you take two minutes now? How is Jesus glorified in his death? I'll see you in a couple of minutes. A bit like our sporting examples, in verse 31, Jesus talks about the victory that He's going to achieve through His death. A victory that brings glory. Now that makes sense. If Jesus is going to ascend to His throne as the ruler of the world, He's going to have to overthrow the current ruler. But does that sound a little strange? Surely the God who made the world is currently ruling over His world. Who's this other current ruler that Jesus needs to overthrow? Well... Uh, it's described as Satan. In his deception, our Western world thinks that Satan doesn't exist. The devil's a joke. Uh, he's something that we kind of uh, mock or make fun of if we want to kind of sound like we're a bit rebellious and bad. But the reality is that Satan does exist. And he does deceive the world into blindly following his lies in rebellion against the God who made them. It, for all intents and purposes, Satan is the ruler of the world because he has power over everyone in the world. Have a look at how the Apostle Paul describes this as he writes to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, And you, these people, before they turned and put their trust in Jesus, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the ruler, the king of this age, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So how does, Satan, how does Jesus defeat Satan when he dies? If Satan's currently controlling the world in their deception, how does Jesus defeat Satan through his death? And normally we think that the person who is still alive is the one who's won the battle, the one who's standing over his opponent. But Jesus says His very purpose was to come and to die, to be lifted up in His death. And though confusing, it must have resonated a little bit with what the crowd had just heard. Because He said, as He's raised up, He will gather all people to Him. And the crowd who were there would have heard what He said just beforehand, back in verse 24. He says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Through death, Jesus was going to bring fruit. He was going to gather people to Himself. 
And he's going to gather all people, not just those Jewish Israelites that he, he came to first and foremost, but people like the Greeks who came to him back in verse 20. People like you and me as well. So Jesus says it was his purpose to die. That wasn't an accident. But if Jesus' purpose was to come and die and somehow gather people to himself, we still haven't worked out how that gives him victory over Satan, have we? Well, let me perhaps remind you of a few verses that God revealed to John in Revelation. Uh, on the screen, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, uh, describing this same defeat, this overthrow of Satan. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Did you notice how Satan is described here? He is the accuser. His power is, well, pointing to anyone, you or me, and saying, God, look what they've done. Look how they've disobeyed you and rebelled against you and failed to love you and to live for you all the time. And his call is that God, in his perfect justice, should rightly punish those who've disobeyed him. That's the accusation. And sadly, his accusation is right. We do rightly deserve God's wrath and punishment, and we all fail to live how we ought to. But notice that Satan, he's kind of not a, an equal with God. The great power he's got is just to point out where people have fallen short of what God requires. And then, well, he's asking God to act in his perfect character. So Satan's there, this nagging voice, sitting, well, in the presence of God, saying, Look at Tim. Look what he's done. He's disobeyed you. He's failed you again. When are you going to smite him, God? When are you going to put him to death as he deserves? That's the voice of Satan. And if his accusation is right, how can he be defeated? Well, if you notice, it's only by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that Satan can be overthrown. It's only through the sacrificial death of Jesus, not by somehow, you know, battling Satan to the death, no, but by taking away the accusation. He takes the accusation away from me and from you because he took the punishment that God was going to rightly pour out on us on himself. That's what it means for Jesus to die to defeat Satan. He died to take the punishment that we deserve, so Satan has no accusation he can make against us. Instead, he has been cast out from heaven. He no longer has a presence there to accuse God's people. And instead, Jesus sits at God's right hand. And Jesus sits there as the one who shed his blood for us. And he sits there saying, I have died for that one. I died in his place. I shed my blood for her. She can now live forever with us. This is the great testimony of what Jesus has done in his victory. You may recall back in chapter 10, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who both laid down his life to save his sheep but that wasn't the end. He was going to take his life up again. And since then, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's shown that he's, he is the resurrection. 
and he has the power to give life to the dead. You see, death is Jesus' victory over Satan because he takes the power from Satan. He gives life to those who come to him. He is the one who gives life to those who deserve death. Now, just as God promised, he would raise this Christ again to life, to reign and to rule forever. You see, the crowds were right in their expectation. How could the Christ die? He was the one who was going to rule and reign forevermore. But they just couldn't comprehend how death was going to be the way to that victory. That death would somehow be the hour of his glorification. But now that you know that, will you respond rightly? Will you glorify the Christ as he deserves, as the one who is victorious through death? So Jesus' death was for his glory. But you may have noticed that we skipped over a couple of important verses in the middle. Because you see, even though Jesus had glory and he he spoke and did things that revealed his glory, Jesus wasn't on about chasing glory. That wasn't his goal. Have a look back in chapter 7 and verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority, Jesus said, seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Jesus came seeking the glory of his Father. And rather than pursuing his own glory, God's glory is what he desired. The glory of the loving Father who sent him into the world to die to save the world. Which brings us to those key verses that we skipped over. Jesus knows that as he's going to face his death, it is his hour of his glorification. He's going to willingly lay down his life and he does it for his Father's glory. Have a look at verse 27. Jesus said, uh, we'll read from 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Rather than turning to self-interest, Jesus continues to demonstrate his perfect obedience to God, seeking his glory, even at the cost of his own life. And God responds audibly with that great affirmation. He affirms not just that he has glorified himself through Jesus' perfect life of obedience, of teaching authoritatively, of, of working the works of God, but no more than that, he will glorify himself through Jesus' death as well. Far from being a failure, a shameful deviation from the divine plan, Jesus' death was for the glory of the Father. Not only did it rescue God's people from their slavery to sin and death, but it perfectly revealed God's glory. And in so doing, he glorified his Son. It was his glory that the cross was all about. And even though the account may sound foolish, that you would somehow trust or give your life to or believe in one who was publicly shamed and executed as a criminal, God's people are not ashamed of the cross because it is the power and the glory of God. But how does Jesus' glory and God's glory relate to each other? We used to think of glory competitively with sport. There's only one person who's glorious and you fight over who's going to get the glory. Our minds, glory is always self-seeking. It's always competitive. But we've seen that Jesus is living for his Father's glory 
And we see that God is also seeking His Son's glory. Take a look back in chapter 8 and verse 50. Jesus says, yet I don't seek my own glory. We know from chapter 7 He's seeking His Father's glory. But He says, there is one who does seek my glory and He is the judge. And a few verses later, Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God you see, Jesus seeks to glorify His Father, and the Father seeks to glorify the Son, which can sound a bit funny, can't it? One, if you've ever been trying to walk through a door with someone else, and you pause, you say, no, no, you go first. And they go, no, 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 you go first. And you sit there for a little while. Who's going to be honored by going through first? Is that what's going on here? Well, not quite. But I think in chapter 11 and verse 4, we see some of how the, the glory of the Father and the Son actually comes together. So back uh, if you flip over a page back to uh, talking about Lazarus and his death, we read in chapter 11 and verse 4, When Jesus heard of it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead for the glory of God. But the way that God is glorified through Jesus, the Son of God, no, so is through the Son of God being glorified. You see, the way that Jesus is glorified is when people believe in Him that He is the one that God sent, the one with the power to raise the dead and to give life. So Lazarus is raised to bring glory to God as people will glorify God by believing in the Son, the Son who does the works of God Himself. God glorifies Himself by giving Jesus His works to do, so that people are brought to believe in Him for the glory of God. But that raises another problem for us. You see, most of the people who saw Jesus' signs, they didn't believe in Him. And if they didn't believe in Him, why should we? This is a problem that John turns to address in verse 37 of chapter 12. Basically, he says, Israel's just doing what God said they were going to. About 700 years earlier, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, saying that God's people were even going to reject His Spirit-filled servant who came to save them from the judgment their sin deserved. And that's exactly what happens here. As Jesus, the Spirit-filled servant, comes to rescue His people, His people don't even believe in Him. And not because the miracles were somehow deficient or because they, the words weren't worth believing. No, it was actually in fulfillment of something else God said back in Isaiah chapter 6. It wasn't that they just didn't, it was that they couldn't. It was God's judgment on His rebellious people. Their eyes were closed, their hearts were hard. They couldn't turn and respond and receive salvation. Now, this wasn't against their will. Their stubborn and hard hearts rejected the Savior that God provided. But it was also God's well, the tragic consequence of their rebellion. And John's point is clear in these verses. Rather than looking back at the Jews and saying, they didn't believe, so I shouldn't believe, look back further and see that God promised, God said that this was going to be the case. And so don't follow in their folly of rejecting God's Savior, but actually respond with open eyes, open ears, and a soft heart to receive Jesus as your King, to glorify God by believing in Him the one who has conquered death through dying in your place. But as you keep on going, you also know some things that they didn't know. They didn't know how the Christ could die 
we know that he has died and raised, been raised to life again to defeat Satan and death. And you also know verse 42. As we read, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. To the, to the crowds, it looked like all the religious leaders had rejected Jesus. They somehow knew that he wasn't the Christ, even though the crowds thought he could have been. But some of them, maybe a bit like Nicodemus, who we met back in chapter 3, some of them did believe that Jesus was the Christ. They just weren't telling anybody. You see, they feared being cast out of the synagogue, even though Jesus had cast out Satan. Whose side do you want to be on there? Do you want to fear the God of heaven and earth or the religious leaders? It seems like a foolish choice, doesn't it? As verse 43 says, to fear man more than God, to well, desire the glory of man more than the glory of God. We can be quick to rebuke, can't we? But do you ever sit silently when you could speak up? In a tutorial, at the lunch table with your colleagues, maybe at home or with housemates or in college. There are many times when we choose to keep a low profile, aren't there? When we would rather not be known as a Christian in that context. And while you may well dispute well exactly how they've gone about expressing their faith or whether they too truly believe uh, what the Bible does say, when Margaret Court and Israel Flower showed us that you can go from the pinnacle of glory as a sporting idol to being public enemy number one if you, well, if you don't express your faith in what's deemed to be a socially acceptable way. They're a reminder or even a warning what might happen if you raise your, raise your head and speak out and own your faith. Whose glory do you really desire? The glory that comes from man or the glory that comes from God? Which, I'm not sure if you notice, actually brings us to one of the surprising twists in this passage. It's there at the end of verse 43, and it's your glory. And now we know that glory for us mere mortals is generally unattainable. The best that very few of us can do is to maybe achieve a moment in the sun of sporting glory. But even then, it's just fleeting and doesn't last. In contrast, both God and Jesus have eternal glory in themselves. They glorify each other. They truly deserve glory. And the staggering truth is that all those who believe in Jesus actually receive glory from God. How can that work? Well, here's one last chance for you to reflect on the passage to chat about with your friends. How is it that believing in Jesus, or has believing in Jesus, your glory? Have a couple of minutes. We'll see you soon. I imagine some of you might have been thinking of the kind of sports team analogy. It's you know, a pretty common way of thinking about how we can receive the glory that God alone has. If you're, you know, the fans in the crowd, when your team wins, they've got the glory. But don't you share in their glory? I think it's pretty similar. As we commit ourselves to Jesus when He is victorious through death and raised at God's right hand, we are with Him and we get to share in some of His glory. Or we're kind of in His aura, if you like. I think it's a pretty helpful image, but I wonder if we can even go further. Uh, twice Jesus talks about light. So in verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. But also in verse 36, he says, While you have the light, believe in the light, 
that you may become sons of light. You see, Jesus is light, and those who believe in Him, they share in His light. They're taken out of the darkness. And isn't that a great image of Jesus, that light is this kind of picture of glory, this aura around Him that we are brought into? But not just out of the darkness to share in the light. We're actually brought into the family that gives light, to share in God's glory. Because if you believe in the light, you become a son of the light. So rather than being a fan still at a distance in the stadium, I wonder if it's more like being brought in, adopted into the royal family, the family of the king himself. The greatest glory that we could ever hope to attain, it's not a medal at the Olympics or even winning state of origin. It's actually receiving the glory that comes from God for all who come and believe in his son. It's a gift to all who hear Jesus' words, who see his works, and who rightly respond for God's glory by believing in Him. Now there's just one last problem that Jesus wants to deal with in what are His last public words before He goes to His death on the cross. The problem is, well, Jesus is just a man, if you like. The allegiance, the glory, the belief that Jesus has called for, it's a devotion and worship that belongs to God alone. And so time and again, Jesus has claimed to be the one coming from God, sent from God with the authority from God to do the works of God and offer the life of God before he brings the judgment of God. He showed us time and again that he is with the Father, doing the work of the Father. And God has endorsed these claims by glorifying his Son with the works that he's given, answering the prayers of the Son, raising the dead in response to the words of the Son, is speaking from heaven about the glory that he will bring. And so one last time, Jesus cries out to the crowd. Have a look at verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. They're staggering words, aren't they? If you want to see God, if you want to know God, if you want to hear the true and living God, where do you look? Where do you go? To Jesus. Though he's a person born of Mary, they suppose his dad was the carpenter in Nazareth. His feet walked the dusty streets of Nazareth and through Palestine and into Jerusalem. And he now claims that if you want to know the true and living God, the one God who gives life and will be there to judge the living and the dead, then believe in Jesus. He is the one. He is the one victorious over Satan and over death. He is the one who offers to share His glory with all who believe in Him. He is the one that we should put our trust in. Because He is the one who came into the world to save the world through His death, not to bring judgment. But don't take Him lightly. Because if you reject His words, His words that give life, well, those very words are the words from God that will judge you on that final last day. Now, this time... The hour is upon us, isn't it? It's week 10, exams around the corner. There's many things to fill our minds with and to be distracted by over the coming months. Final assessments, long summer break. What are you going to do with the time that is before you? Or even before you bury your head in the books or clear your head at the beach, what do you need to do? Can I urge you all to give glory to God? What does that look like? Well, He is the one who is victorious. He is the one who is worthy. He offers you glory. Will you believe in Him for the glory of God?
Because there is nothing better to chase after with your life than to glorify the God who made you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sorry that we chase after glory in so many different ways rather than seeking the glory of your only Son, the one who deserves all glory and praise. Father, may we turn and put our trust in Him. May we believe in Him for your glory. And Father, thank you that in your Lord, deep kindness, you offer to share your glory with us as we come into your kingdom. Father, may we live day by day for your glory and not our own, knowing that in Him alone is life and peace and hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.